morning is Sunday morning. I have no idea what the date is. It's <laughs> uh, the 27th. It's the 27th. And uh, I want to talk to you this morning about Agnosto Theo. And uh, our first scripture is going to come from Psalm 33. Uh, we're going to read 10 through 22. Please turn there with me. Tell me when you're there. there. One of you's there. There. What's your... Psalm 33. We're going to start in the 10th verse. Uh, I want to share some things with you. And they, of course, relate to the slideshow that I showed you before uh, the message began. But more than that, I just want to talk to you about where we are in life and what we might learn, what we might do. So often, if you hear one of these messages from me, you could come away with the idea that being an American is bad. <laughs> it's not. Not in any way, shape, or form. I'm very proud to be here. I'm excited to be here. There was a time that America was the light of the world. I believe that time has since faded. What we're contributing to the world is largely yuckiness. But our forefathers did some amazing things, and we don't have to do what our nation is doing. Amen. I believe that you were born for a time and purpose. Pick up with me in Psalm 33 and in verse 10. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of His heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people He chose for His inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From His dwelling place He watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. Let's pause there for a moment and think about that. No matter what your nation's plan is, and nations are made of people, in fact, you could translate this peoples, it, uh, it would work the same way. Individuals make up nations. Those nations develop plans. But the Lord Himself has a plan for every individual within the nation. You know that the Canaanite nation, for instance, was under a curse. The Syrophoenician woman that came to Jesus, Jesus said, the children's bread's not for the dogs. They were under a curse because of something that they did. This woman's faith expressed in Jesus in asking for even the crumbs that fell from the table got her a praise from the King of Kings and escaped from her national destiny and an inclusion in the blessings that are only for God's people. This means that no matter what your nation's plan is, God also has a plan for you as an individual. You can reject the tide that is flowing in one direction, a flood of dissipation, and choose to stand up and be counted by the Lord. The Bible says here in this verse that He considers everything that you do. Now, if we say He considers everything, what does that leave out? Nothing. Nothing. That means that if you weren't charged for a gallon of milk and you left, he considers that. Now this could birth in you legalism. You could go, oh, well, I'm going to make sure that every T is crossed, every I is dotted, every jot, every tittle. And all that will do is show that you're incapable of living up to the Lord's standards. So what is the answer then? He's considering everything that you do because He's forming the hearts of all. The events of our lives, whether good or bad, whether it was a wonderful, amazing, exciting experience or it was a terribly painful, deep, difficult experience, were all meant for one purpose. They're meant to get us to reach out for our King. To ask for His help. To let Him form our hearts. 
This is why the events have happened. You said, well, if so-and-so hadn't done that, then I wouldn't be here. Really? How small is your God? You really think He couldn't thump Him on the head and you not have a problem? He allowed it to happen to you for a reason. I said, but wait, Eric, there are things so dark in my life God had nothing to do with it. Well, there is an enemy. He has plans for you too. Which are you going to live in? His plan or the king's plan? We have a choice to make every day. This world is in need of repair. The Jews say that we need tukun ha-olam. This is to repair the world. They say that from the beginning, God told Adam, go forth and subdue the planet, meaning that it would want to resist, and our job was to fight to bring it under God's control. The events that are happening in your life might have happened to show you it's out of control and needs to come under God's power. Or they may be happening to show you how much you are under God's control. I don't know where you are in the spectrum. If you're like me, it probably depends upon the day. But our God is considering everything that we do and He's trying to form our hearts. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance despite all its great strength. It cannot save. Are you getting the picture here? It doesn't matter what your resources are. It doesn't matter where your bank account is. I have met people that have never seen a checkbook or a credit card in their life. But they're rich. So let me ask you, what does all of that stuff matter? It was either put there to show you that if your life was out of control or under His control, one or the other, and to form your heart in a way that was dependent upon the Lord. You know that He will cause you to get hungry so that when He feeds you, you'll know who fed you. Deuteronomy 8 teaches us that. And yet the devil's able to take those very verses and quote them in an attacking way against you. Isn't that interesting? The king puts you here for a reason. There's not a person in this room that could be here that was not here except for his desire. Not one. I can say that so confidently because the word says it. And I'll show you that in a little while. As we move forward with this, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. It's a funny thing. Uh, when you say eyes, what do you think of? One or two or three? How many eyes do you think of? Two. Two. Sometimes in the Bible, God's described as having seven eyes. You ever look those up? Sometimes it simply says that the heavenly creatures were covered in eyes, or in one place in Ezekiel it says full of eyes. What on earth is the Bible trying to teach with this? He's looking everywhere all of the time. He's considering you. He's evaluating you. You know, you ever seen a bird? They, they've got two eyes and they, they face sideways. So he wants to look at you good, he turns his head, right? He never gets both eyes on you at once. As many eyes are available, the Lord has them all trained upon mankind because he's considering your actions. He wants to know, is this a heart I can work with? Is this somebody who's expressing faith? Is the fruit on this tree something that is worth growing and cultivating? Or does it need to be pruned and cut back? The Lord is making these determinations about our lives. And you know what? As Americans, we fall back on this. Well, the Lord knows my heart. I want to tell you, American, He does know your heart, but do you? See, He knows our hearts by what we do. He knows our hearts because out of our hearts come our words. Out of our hearts come faith-prompted deeds. Out of our hearts come the sum total of our lives. Your heart is not a beating organ in your chest as much as it's the center of a human being. What is flowing from you? Does it jump right out there and say, pity me, I'm a victim? 
and yet you claim to be victorious in Jesus? Does it jump right out there and say, I'm better than you? You spell my name with a big I and yours with a little U. What does it say? See, our lives speak a message before the Lord, and He's considering it. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love, to deliver them from death. Well, you don't have to hope in His love if you never face death. How much of our lives are insulated literally from death? You ever seen a cow killed? Raise your hand in here if you've seen livestock slaughtered. Isn't that an amazing thing that we probably have 15 people in this room that have ever even seen livestock slaughtered? How insulated is our lives? It's wrapped in cellophane, isn't it? You know, where does the hamburger come from? Well, it comes from Walmart, right? We have no idea. This was not biblical. This was not the way. Death was all around you. Death was the problem that came upon mankind that we desperately needed and our hope was to be delivered from. This was the problem. Now, not even our loved ones die in our homes. We ship them off to nursing homes. That's not to make you feel bad. It's just to show you how insulated we are from the real problems in mankind. This is also that we can feel powerful, rich, in need of nothing. I tell you, if we could get some sand off our eyes, you would see how pitiful the average American church is. I want to build something that looks entirely different. And I don't think it takes thatched roofs to do it, although I wouldn't be disappointed if we had a thatched roof. I mean, in the last month, our whole church has picked up from one building and moved to another one, right? And if we need to move to another one, we'll do that. We're learning something, church. Our God is bringing these things into our lives to teach us what it is to be a community filled with His power. To deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Are you kidding me? Famine? We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and shield. You know, I love this about charismatic Christians, of which I'm one, or Pentecostal, or whatever you want to call me, I'll wear your title. But think about this. We're so excited that God moves, but how excited are you to wait in hope on the Lord? We feel like if He didn't answer that moment, if we didn't see it that moment, it was somehow a failure. This is not biblical. How long did Abraham wait? How about Isaac? Lord have mercy. What about Jacob with his wives? Think about these things. The Lord has always required of people waiting in hope. You know why? This is how He can consider everything that you're doing. He can look and form your heart and fill it with an eager expectancy of God's goodness. Or you can be overwhelmed with the feeling that the world is against you. That there is no hope and it's all been a bad joke. Let me ask you, what is the fruit of that, though? You could fill it with a desire. For all, you could fill it with the peacock. You could just shoot for greatness. You and Donald Trump could compete for the best hairstyle and the most wives and, uh, and all of those things. How hollow is it? What is the Lord trying to knead into the dough of your heart? What kind of yeast is being worked in there? What kind of leaven is there? In Him our hearts rejoice. For we trust in His holy name. Listen to this. Hope, hope, deliver from death, famine, trust. May your unfailing love rest upon us even as we put our hope in you. I'm convinced that what is needed for us is that we have a chance to put our hope in the Lord. You don't have to hope for anything that you already have. This means that you need to be denied something. There must be something that is not at your fingertips. There must be something to yearn for, persevere for, fight for, hope for for us to say that our trust is in the Lord. You can't have trust in the Lord if you have nothing to trust Him for. Our 
theology has reduced it all to a bumper sticker. You know? Like, got milk? Got Jesus? It's ridiculous. You find people who are close to the Lord, they're people who have been crushed in spirit because they do not yet have what they've been promised, but they know it's coming. And they're willing to make any sacrifice, live in any condition, do anything, because the one who promised them is faithful. For us, salvation is always something in the distance. For us, salvation is always something that's off-world, something that is celestial. For the rest of the world, salvation is something that's occurring daily as they eat. And when they fast, it's a fast that they don't know whether they'll ever recover from. That's what made it a sacrifice. You ever fasted for a few days and then rewarded yourself? I mean, how's that any different than Fat Tuesday and Mardi Gras? <laughs> if you don't know what that is, God bless you. <laughs> you know, there are some questions that plague our time, and it's plagued every time. People say things like, but what about those who never heard? Well, friends, if that's a real-life problem for you, the moment they met you, it should have fixed the problem. Huh? It's always a hypothetical, though, with us, huh? It's always something, uh, but what about this? And you've never encountered it. Let's talk about what you've experienced in life. But in any case, what about those that never heard? Well, the Lord is considering everything they did. He's forming their hearts. Well, what about the tragedy that I had in my life? If you only knew what I'd been through. you ever watched American Idol? Is there anybody that sings an American Idol that was not a crack baby or from some terrible thing? It's like we, we have to invent for ourselves problems. So that we can look delivered. Friends, when you meet people that have been delivered, they don't have to convince you how deep their hole was. You can feel it. When you walk into Yanni Palum and you meet these Christians, they don't have to speak to you. You can feel the presence of God with them. Well, what is that worth to you? How about the 86-year-old woman? What would it be worth to you to be the fourth generation of Christians in your family and right down to the seventh generation they revere you for your character, not what you might leave them in an inheritance. What would that be worth? It's only one way to get it, saints. I want to talk to you for a minute, and I've always made fun of preachers that did this, and look, the Lord finds new ways to humble me all of the time. So I'm going to have to quit making fun of three points in a poem. <laughs> now, I'm not going to read to you poetry today. But preachers do this thing. I say, you know, this reminds me of a story. And they do that because they want to tell you, I read this in a book, I have no personal connection to it, it didn't happen to me. It's a way to kind of work it into the sermon. I want to tell you, I wasn't there. I have no connection to this story other than I read it and it touched me. In the 3rd century, a man named Diogenes, his 3rd century AD, wrote a book. Uh, maybe back then it was a scroll, today it's a book. It is called Lives of the Eminent Philosophers. This is really neat because in it, he chronicles powerful people in the centuries before him. People who did great things for God, people who touched nations, who did uh, noteworthy things. One of the things that is uh, in this book is he's writing back in the 6th century, so, I mean, figure that out, you know, 800, 900 years earlier than he's living, about two kings who lived in Greece. One is Megacles, you may have heard of him. Uh, you see him sometimes in... Uh, movies. Uh, another is Cylon. And they began to fight, and Megacles had control of Athens. So what happens, though, is because Megacles looks like he's going to be overpowered, he says, hey, Cylon, I know what we need to do. Why don't you come to the palace 
And while you're here under a promise of amnesty, we will uh, we'll work this out. We'll make a treaty. Like any good heathen king, when Cylon got there, Megacles killed him and all the royal contingents. This is a historical uh, account. This is uh, as, as reliable as accounts we have about Julius Caesar. Okay? An ancient historian wrote down these things as having happened. Well, apparently, a giant famine ensued after that event. It's as if something in the heavenly said, this is not the kind of kingdom that I will bless. This is not something that pleases me. And the famine got so severe that the people in Athens began to sacrifice to their gods and ask that the famine would be broken. And to give you an idea just how bad a shape Gentile Athens is in, you need to understand that the common saying at this time was to add another god to Athens would be like throwing a stone in a quarry. Or the English vernacular might be spitting in the ocean. <laughs> I mean, this is useless. They have so many gods. Now, if this is the 6th century B.C., what's going on in biblical history around this time? If you got a chance to go glance at that timeline over there, in the 6th century B.C., we're between two captivities. The northern kingdom of Israel, because of disobedience in 740 B.C., was brought into captivity under the Assyrian Empire. In 586 B.C., hence the 6th century B.C., the southern kingdom was brought into captivity because of disobedience in Babylon. So at a time when God's people are thoroughly bound up because of their own disobedience, we have a famine going on in Athens. We have something that has displeased the heavens, and so all sustenance has been cut off. So the Athenians do what they've always done. They begin sacrificing to one of hundreds of gods. And they go through them all, and there is... No success. You ever been to a place where you've tried everything that you know to do and it just hasn't worked? Maybe ancient history is not all that different than modern history. Maybe sometimes the heavens are shut up just because we are asking for the wrong answer. Something is required for the gospel to work. Humility. Would somebody please read Proverbs 18.12? Read it strong, loud, proud. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. It's an amazing thing that God will keep an answer from you for no other reason than He wants to humble you. And then when He sends the answer to you, have you ever wondered why white Indo-Europeans went to Africa and crossed, like David Livingstone, crossed Africa for the glory of God? Why would God do that to the Africans? Could anything be worse than having lily white British guy come and cross the continent to bring them a story that they had never heard about a God they were not in contact with. Think about it if you are a proud warrior in your tribe. Think about it if you are the chief. Think about it if you're the one that's been instructing them on spiritual things. How humbling would it have to be to listen to this guy, admit that your entire way of life has been wrong, repent and receive the gospel, and yet that has always been the price of admission. Our Lord puts us in a situation where only... Humility will allow His kingdom to flow. Well, He brought Athens to that place. During a time period where Isaiah said about His people, Isaiah 26, 18, Isaiah said about His people, we are pregnant, we writhed in pain, but we, we failed. We've given birth to the wind. We didn't give birth to salvation. It didn't happen. Athens is in need of serious salvation. 
But the people of God are all bound up with their disobedience. So Athens did something that showed humility. They wrote and sent for a foreigner, a man from Gnosis on the Isle of Crete. It's almost like they, they got halfway to Israel and didn't make it all the way. <laughs> it's alright, God's people were not in Israel at the time. Isn't it amazing that God could have a divine appointment for you, but because of disobedience you could not be where you're supposed to be? So they write for a man named Epimenides. I've called him always Epimedes because it's easier for me to say, but I'll try to get it right for you this morning. Epimenides comes from the Isle of Crete, Gnosis. He shows up a foreigner and he says, I want to talk to you about this. You've asked for my help, and if you really want my help, I I'm just going to be honest. If you've sacrificed every god you have, and it hasn't changed the famine situation, there must yet be a god that you don't know about. And more than that, if he's able to fix it, he must be above the gods that you're serving now. Sounds like a pretty smart guy. Huh? So let's do this. We know how nature works. Let's take two flocks of sheep. And we'll take some uh, of various colors and some of solid colors. We'll put them on the hills right outside the Oropagus where they were meeting. And let's deprive them of food. This way, when we let them out in the morning and all of the sheep run out to go eat, if they don't eat, we'll consider that something supernatural has occurred. Because what would be natural is for them to run out and eat. So if something supernatural occurs, we will understand that this unknown God is trying to contact us. And we should try to contact Him. So they did as He had said. They kept them from eating all night. Then the next morning when they opened the stalls, all of the sheep went out and began eating. Very disappointing. Nothing but natural things. Except as they began to look, the finest ram from each color of each flock laid down and did not eat. They understood this was a clear message from heaven. You can reach me, and you can reach me with a sacrifice, but I only want your best. I only want your finest. Don't bring to me something that is not worthy of me. So, Epimenendez be began ordering the sacrifice of each of these choice rams. Isn't it amazing how people without the special revelation of God, without being told exactly how God wanted the sacrifice, how all those things, could still find themselves doing it? This is because in our ignorance, God will work through that. He loves you. I one time took communion with French bread and orange juice. There is no worse way you could do that. But God honored it because I was an idiot. I didn't know any better. But my heart was right. I actually got healed that night too. Remember that, Matthew? In fact, it was the first time Matthew and I ever took communion together. So they began sacrificing, but before you sacrifice, you have to build something. So they built altars. They built altars just like they built all of their other gods. And there were literally dozens of them because the choicest ram from each flock laid down. And a man cries out to Epimenendez from the distance. He's a stonemason. And he says, hey, uh, what should I write on this altar? You know, whose name do I write? He said, it would be incredibly presumptuous to try to name this God. We've cried out to him on the basis of our ignorance that he should reveal himself. We don't want to presume to know his name, his function. Let's instead let him teach us right on it, Agnosto Theo. The unknown God. So in the Oropagus, there is a meeting shortly thereafter. 
they famine lifts. Everybody's beginning to eat. Their crops are coming back. And they want to make sure that this event is not forgotten. So they put into the city works a program to upkeep these altars. But you can imagine, just like our lives, how many times has God come through for you? How many times have you wanted to build a monument and said, after He did this, I'll never doubt Him again? But enough days, weeks, months, years go by and the altars fall into disrepair. You forget. Turn with me to Acts 14. There. In Acts 14, we're in a place called Lystra and Derby. This is about halfway between Israel and Athens. And Paul is on his missionary journey. And uh, he's on a missionary journey with Barnabas at this time. And pick up with me in the 14th verse. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, He let all nations go their own way. Yet He has not left Himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides for you plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Before we get to the text that I hope to really expound on, I want to tell you that when Paul encountered civilizations that did not seem to have a witness of Yahweh God, he did not say, oh, you're on a desert island. Nobody ever, ever told you. He said, our God has not left Himself without testimony. You ever experienced rock, rain that caused your crops to grow? That was our King. Have you ever seen the birth of a healthy baby? That was our King. He looked to the events of their daily life. He said, if any of you experienced joy, that came from our King. So that there is no nation, no people group, no person on the planet anywhere that has not had God's goodness shed abroad in their hearts. That's an amazing thing. Well, what about the bad things? Well, are you still here? That was our King. This is how Paul preached to people that did not have the Tanakh or the Older Testament as their foundation. Now let's see what he said in Athens. In the 17th chapter of Acts, we'll pick up in the 16th verse. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They apparently were not listening well, or would say a foreign God. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. I want to digress for just a moment, then I promise we'll tie up these loose ends. He was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. It does not say he was preaching the good news about Jesus and Jesus' resurrection. The good news about Jesus and the resurrection. When Paul taught the message, it was death is a part of every person's life. 
You were born in a house that you died in. You wanted to eat something, you had to go kill it. Death was always there. But we serve a God who is conquering death for you. And He has proven it by raising Jesus from the dead. And if He raised Him, He will raise you as well. This was the good news. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come upon you because you are no longer subject to death. This is not the message that we commonly hear preached. Please believe on Jesus. You'll go to heaven. Don't you want to go to heaven? Yeah, I want to go to Disney World. What difference does it make? The message was that in Jesus, you would have power over everything that previously had power over you. You would not live forever in some other place. The earth was going to be swallowed by heaven. Thy kingdom come. This was what he preached. But it gets better than that. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus. Anybody in here have a King James Bible? Oh, well, God bless you all. It says Mars Hill. Same thing, and you may have heard those words. This is the same place. Areopagus. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Sounds a lot like a pastor's meeting. <laughs> Look, can we cast vision? Oh, JJ, what's causing your church to grow the fastest? Matthew, was there anything that you need to bring more people in quickly? Is there anything that we could do to make the gospel more palatable to everybody, even if it robs us of the power of God? We just want butts and seats, you know? Anybody want to help with that? This is my experience. Maybe it's not been yours, but that's been my experience with popular Christianity. They just sit around and discuss the latest ideas. The kingdom of God requires men who will be given tasks and complete them. Men who will look at the opposition and say, I'll press on today, tomorrow, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. You may have stopped me from crossing this stream today. But because there's people on the other side that need it, you will not stop me tomorrow. This is what the kingdom of God is made of. Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Can you imagine the restraint this must have taken? Think about the commandments that Paul had known since he was a child. You shall have no other gods besides me. You'll not have any graven images. Men of Athens, I see that you're religious in every way. You know, when you're filled with the Spirit of God, though, you remember he wrote, to the pure all things are pure? Yes. You could find something good in it. I was a young man, full of zeal and not much knowledge, and I was working with Charlie Brown, and we were splitting wood. And at the time, uh, I'd never really split much wood, and... I had just come out of the Baptist church and I'd been filled with the Holy Ghost so I was convinced that everybody in the Baptist church Baptist church had some kind of like conspiracy to lie to you, right? Mm -hmm. You know, have you ever received truth and once you receive truth you're upset with everybody that doesn't have it? You forget that two days earlier you didn't have it? <laughs> so uh, we're working with a guy who's Baptist and uh, I made some kind of comment about it. And Charlie took the opportunity to say to me, number one, that I didn't have the truth a month earlier, but number two, said, this guy doesn't have what you have. And he's still serving Jesus with all of his heart. Don't you have to kind of admire him more? Well, isn't that a perspective? These men were religious in every way. 
they didn't have the special truth that they needed. They didn't know what they needed. But they were trying with what they did. Yeah. Can you relate to that at all? Yeah. This is Zacchaeus climbing up his uh, sycamore fig tree. This is us striving with whatever God has put in our lives. And He's considered our hearts. He's forming them. He looks at everything we do. And so He sends us the truth. Where were the people of God when Athens was going through their famine? <laughs> they were in their bondage when the world needed them. But Christ God, they didn't stay there. Because now we have one of God's select chosen people. A Jew of Jews. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Circumcised on the eighth day. And he has shown up. And you know what he has? He has the truth that they so badly need. Come on. Where are you when people need you? Are you off in your own bondage? Or do you recognize the day of your appointment? Do you take an opportunity to step to the plate and knock it out of the park? Or do you shrink and hide because of inadequacy and fear? They're all kind of bondages. A foreign government doesn't have to come to take you captive for you to be in bondage. When your mouth doesn't work when God tells it to, that's bondage. Well, praise God. Israel is succeeding because one of their finest sons is in Africa. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar. How many? One. One. There was almost no witness of God left in their lives from that previous event because enough time had gone by that their altars fell in disrepair. Friends, there's a warning in this for you. God may have rescued you many, many times. But if you are not working those altars of your heart, it falls into disrepair and you can get to a place where there is no witness of God left. Unfortunately, I've lived long enough to watch this happen. Somebody who was once in our midst and sang praises with the brothers and rejoiced in the presence of God doesn't know who God is today. So I want to ask you before we move on, what is the condition of your altar? Is it well kept? Is there fresh sacrifice on it? Or is your experience with God something that happened 15 years ago that you can barely remember? When people tell me I'm a Christian, I was baptized on such and such date, and I mean they're almost always between five years old and nine years old. Like, good for you. I am head over heels in love with Jesus. Let's talk in terms like that. I'm just kind of uncomfortable with it, you know, that's not really my theology. One guy told me it was theological rape to try to force a born-again experience on him. Uh, what do you say to something like this? It was a pastor. A pastor? A pastor. What do you say? What is the condition of your altar? Is there anything left that says, I remember when God came through for me, and if He did it then, He'll do it again. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God, Agnosto Theos. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. Isn't this what the Gospel does? Doesn't it take a picture of a peacock earlier, a picture of a pig, a picture of a snake, and say these things that you're already familiar with, the elements that God is already using in your life, I want to explain to you how God has been considering everything that you do. 
How He's been trying to form your heart. How He has not left Himself without testimony. He's had a plan for you since you were born. And He's been trying to reach you and that's why I'm here. This is the Gospel. The Gospel is not some theological construct that people simply ascend to. It is when the events of their lives suddenly make sense as God's working in them. And they say, I want you to work fully in me. And it's like a new start, a born again experience. What you worship is something unknown. That is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And He does not live in temples built by human hands. Doesn't matter how big the cross is on the building. It can't contain Him. He was made to live in you. He was made to fill you with power and glory, not stained glass and pews. And He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Because He Himself gives all men life. Well, God never did anything for me. Well, it's unusual that we could be talking then because He gave you the breath that you have. He He breathed it into your spirit. A powerful, violent film. He gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He determined the time set for them and the exact places that they should live. Come on, brothers and sisters. He chose for you the place that you would live. He set boundaries in your life to make sure that you were where He planted you. No different than if a man plants a tree and he puts a stick next to it to guide its growth. Our God has been guiding your growth. He put boundaries for you. He set you in a place so that you could grow in His presence. He did this for a reason. 17.26 says so that you would reach out and find Him. Though He's not far from you. He said, but wait a minute, I've had an experience with Him before. What do you mean find Him? The Athenians had had an experience with Him before too, but it wasn't doing them any good today. We don't serve a God who saves you one time. We serve a God who better be saving you every day of your life. Or else, He's not really your Lord, is He? Of course, you need something to be saved from, don't you? Maybe therein lies the problem. To us, God can be abstracted because there is no room for Him in our construct. To us, He can be something simply talked about. All the latest ideas. Friends, I encourage you to venture out into the waters of faith. Do something a little bit daring. See if there's something you can wait on the Lord for. Well, I prayed for that person and they didn't get healed. Pray again. Pray every day. Draw a circle around them and refuse to leave until they do get healed. How about something? What, what thing's for sure? We know if you don't do anything, nothing different's going to happen. If you're already experiencing all the fullness of God, I mean, if there's no need for fivefold ministry in your life because you've obtained that full measure of Christ, well, praise God for you, but the rest of us need to get hungry. Can you say amen to that? Amen. amen. As if he needed anything. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though He is not far from each one of us. 
I one time heard a man quote Gandhi, and I was appalled because he was a church leader who did it. Then later he quoted Nostradamus. Okay, I'm talking about Jack Van Empey on TV. And um, I just didn't understand how that could be true. Why he would do something like that. As I've grown in my Christian faith, please hear me out, don't misquote me here. I have come to the conclusion that if Gandhi said it and it was true, it's true even if it's Gandhi who said it. If Hitler said it and it was true, it's not any less true because Hitler said it. And I believe that truth comes from the King of Kings. Like I say back home, even a blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. I believe that our faith is not threatened by looking around and seeing truth in unusual places. This allows us to say, men of Athens, I see you're religious in every way. You know what else it allows us to do? Quote prophets who are outside of Israel. Listen to this. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. The man who said that was recorded in a book in the third century written by Diogenes. His name was Epaminendas. He had been to Athens, and it was something that he taught them in the sixth century BC, but they had forgotten. And so God sent his special apostle, Saul Paulus of Tarsus, with a Jewish background and a Greek background, so that he would understand their culture as well as the culture that was designed by God. And he could correctly convey truth to them. Friends, the Bible teaches us God's kingdom, his culture, his economy. You already know the culture, kingdom, and economy of the world that you live in. Our job is to reach out to them and teach them about God's kingdom in a way that they can understand. That's our job. And he has buried his testimony in their lives. You just have to look for it. I want to show you a checklist, and then we're closing. Jennifer and I, when I got back from India, began to pray about what God wanted from us. It's a strange thing. When you go somewhere else and you meet Christians in other places, and you see dramatic healings, and you you get to go do something with your hands and feet for the Lord. When you come back, you can feel backslidden. Has anybody ever had that downswell after a missions trip? Yes. Okay, so this is what we felt like the Lord told us. We made a checklist. It comes from Ezekiel 34. Uh, the fourth verse speaks to the pastors, the shepherds in Israel. And He rebukes them. He says, You did not strengthen the weak. You did not heal the sick. You did not bind up the injured. You did not bring back the strays. You did not search for the lost. We took those five things. These are the five things that we will look for daily as a checklist. How many of you want to spend time around those who are weak, but God's called you to it? How many of you want to spend time around those who are sick, but God has called you to it? How many of you want to spend time around the injured, but God has called you to it? How many of you want to go look for those who never seem to want to walk right? But God has called us to it. How many of you are out there searching for the lost? Has it been more than a year since you led somebody to the Lord? Think about that. 
God indicted his own shepherds for not doing these things. So this is our checklist. When we want to go find men of Athens, we're going to look for people that have need of God, believing that He will meet their needs. You don't have to go to a foreign country to find somebody who's weak, sick, injured, straying, or lost, do you? You might even have some in your own family. You might even be some absent from church today. Isn't that an amazing thing? I saw all of you who were here. Do you know as a pastor what you notice most? The ones that aren't here. Yeah. And I'm not going to do it, but I can tell you right now, I can stand and name every family that should be here and is not here right now. The next part of the checklist is a warning. This comes from Ezekiel 34.10. This is what happens if we do not do the work that God tells us to do. And while I may be a shepherd in this flock, if you are that nation of priests, if you have been grafted into Israel's destiny, not replaced Israel, but working alongside with Israel, then you're a shepherd to the world. You are your brother's keeper. And he says, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. We either do the checklist that God is interested in or we cease to be the shepherds that He called. Wow. How about that standard? There's another promise though. He goes on to say, For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and will look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock, when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. Well, if you're God's shepherd, it's because you're His hands and feet. Who should you be looking for? People who have experienced clouds and darkness. You don't know anybody like that, do you? And what is it that you tell them? Just like God stopped the famine in Athens. If you will admit your ignorance that caused this problem, if you'll admit your guilt, our God will stop this famine for you. He will bring you out. And if it takes 600 years, He will send you the special revelation you need to walk with Him as a son and daughter of God. We're supposed to be looking for those. Our last thing that I wrote on my board that I want to look at daily comes from 1 Peter 5.4. It says, and when the chief shepherd appears, chief implies that there's shepherds under him, you, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So let me ask you, what is it that you're hungry for? Why do you go to church? Why do you read the Word? If you've been around us any length of time, you know that it's not so that you can get rich. So why is it that you do it? I believe it's so that you can develop what the Jews call a good eye, an ayin tovah. You can look at the world as God looks at it. You can set out to repair it. The proof of that is what has already gone on in your life. Are you better off today than you were two weeks ago? Are you better off today than you were a decade ago? Well, if God is doing it for you, why will He not do it for the people around them, around you if they wait patiently? And if the answer to that question was not an affirmative yes, then you might need to experience a more daily salvation. Maybe the altar's got some stuff growing on it that shouldn't be there. 
You want to pray? Yes. Let's pray. Don't stand up. <coughs> you ever have people talk ugly about you? Yes. Two of you? Yes. You ever have people talk ugly about you? Yes. You ever had things happen to you that you wish were not happening? Yes. You can stand and focus on those problems. When you do, they get bigger than they should, and you become smaller than you should be. If you're about the kingdom's business, your eye will be on what God's eyes are on. Your concern will be for those who want the doctor, not those who think they already have him. This brings perfect clarity. It is the cure for depression. It is the cure for self-centeredness of any kind. We need to get our eyes on what God's eyes are on. Amen. Amen. Mighty God, we thank You. We thank You for a chance to stand here together as a community. Lord, we love You. Our heart's desire is that we would be hungry for You. Lord, we don't even know the areas that we need You in, but we know that we need You. Lord, we ask that You would not let us hold unproductive lives, but that our knowledge of You would produce an ever-growing faith and deeds in our lives prompted by that faith. Lord, we ask that we would be allowed to bear fruit for Your kingdom, harvest of righteousness. Lord, speak those things to us that You want us to do. Show us in a moment. Let Isaiah's words be true, that we would hear You speaking in our ear. Here is the way. Walk in it, or there it is. We will repent. We will turn. We will move in any direction. But Lord, don't leave us sitting on a shelf. We want to work for You with all of our hearts. We say, here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. Mighty One, we thank You for Your goodness that You've shown us in our lives. We ask, Lord, that You would overflow from our lives to the people around us. Let us seize the opportunities that You have given us that others might know their God. In the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Amen.